morning, everyone. My name is Nina Bryce, and I'm a third-year MDiv here at Harvard Divinity School. We're really delighted here as the HBC Planning Committee to finally arrive at this day and have you all with us. Just wanted to say a couple other things about our theme this year. Um, in the fifth year of this gathering, the fifth annual Buddhism and Race Conference, our intention as a planning committee was to continue the conversation from the last four years, looking closely at Buddhism and race, and also to consider multiple identities, multiple dimensions of identity in the conversation today. And as a planning committee, we found it very auspicious that today, March 8th, is International Women's Day. So looking at gender this morning, um, very excited to celebrate International Women's Day with each of you. And the question of multiple religious belongings that we'll explore in the afternoon is really academically and personally of interest to a lot of us on the planning committee and here at HDS as a multi-religious divinity school. Um, and as many of us part of this Buddhist ministry initiative experiment um, here at HDS, really looking at multiple religious belongings is um, important to us at this time. So our theme is centering intersectionality. And we wanted to begin the day with a video clip, um, introducing the term, providing some framing. And we wanted to let Kimberly Crenshaw introduce the term in her own words. Kimberly Crenshaw is a professor of law and leading scholar of critical race theory who um, developed this term and her work on it starting in 1989 has been really important in shaping our understanding of what intersectionality means. So we wanted to uh, take a few minutes to hear from her in her definition of the term. use the term intersectionality to deal with the fact that many of our social justice problems like racism and sexism are often overlapping, creating multiple levels of social injustice. Now, the experience that gave rise to intersectionality was my chance encounter with a woman named Emma DeGraffery. Emma DeGraffin-Reed was an African-American woman, a working wife, and a mother. I actually read about Emma's story from the pages of a legal opinion written by a judge who had dismissed Emma's claim of race and gender discrimination against a local car manufacturing plant. Emma, like so many African-American women, sought better employment for her family and for others. She wanted to create a better life for her children and for her family. But she applied for a job, and she was not hired. And she believed that she was not hired because she was a black woman. Now, the judge in question dismissed Emma's suit. And the argument for dismissing the suit was that the employer did hire African Americans, and the employer hired women. The real problem, though, that the judge was not willing to acknowledge was what Emma was actually trying to say, that the African Americans that were hired, usually for industrial jobs, maintenance jobs, were all men. And the women that were hired, usually for secretarial or, or front office work, were all white. Only if the court was able to see how these policies came together 
would he be able to see the double discrimination that Emma de Graff and Reed was facing? But the court refused to allow Emma to put two causes of action together to tell her story because he believed that by allowing her to do that, she would be able to have preferential treatment. She'd have an advantage by being able to have two swings at the bat when African-American men and white women only had one swing at the bat. But of course, neither African-American men or white women needed to combine a race and gender discrimination claim to tell the story of the discrimination they were experiencing. Why wasn't the real unfairness, law's refusal to protect African-American women simply because their experiences weren't exactly the same as white women and African-American men? Rather than broadening the frame to include African-American women, the court simply tossed their case completely out of court. Now, as a student of anti-discrimination law, as a feminist, as an anti-racist, I was struck by this case. It, it, it felt to me like injustice squared. So, so first of all, black women weren't allowed to work at the plant. Second of all, the court doubled down on this exclusion by making it legally inconsequential. And to boot, there was no name for this problem. And we all know that where there's no name for a problem, you can't see a problem. And when you can't see a problem, you pretty much can't solve it. Many years later, I, I come to recognize that the problem that Emma was facing was a framing problem. The frame that the court was using to see gender discrimination or to see race discrimination was partial and it was distorting. For me, the, the challenge that I faced was trying to figure out whether there was an alternative narrative, a prism that would allow us to see Emma's dilemma, a, a prism that would allow us to rescue her from the cracks in the law that would allow judges to see her story. So it occurred to me, maybe a, a simple analogy to an intersection might allow judges to better see Emma's dilemma. So if we think about this intersection, the roads to the intersection would be the way that the workforce was structured by race and by gender. And then the traffic in those roads would be the hiring policies and, and the other practices that ran through those roads. Now, because Emma was both black and female, she was positioned precisely where those roads overlapped, experiencing the simultaneous impact of the company's gender and race traffic. The law, the law is like that ambulance that shows up and is ready to treat Emma only if it can be shown that she was harmed on the race road or on the gender road, but not where those roads intersected. So what do you call being impacted by multiple forces and then abandoned 
to fend for yourself? Intersectionality seemed to do it for me. I would go on to learn that African-American women, like other women of color, like other socially marginalized people all over the world, were facing all kinds of dilemmas and challenges as a consequence of intersectionality, intersections of race and, and gender, of heterosexism, transphobia, xenophobia, ableism, all of these social dynamics come together and create challenges that are sometimes quite unique. Thank you so much for your kind attention. And of course, we would love to play Dr. Crenshaw's entire talk. She has a lot of very important things to say. But please go to YouTube and find this, the, inter the urgency of intersectionality. And feel free to watch the whole thing on your own. It's really valuable. Um, but we wanted to just begin with that, with letting the definition speak for itself and um, offer that foundation for the rest of the day. And it is now my great pleasure to introduce Professor Cheryl Giles, who will uh, describe our panelists, our distinguished guests, and our moderator today, um, share a little bit more about who they are. And Professor Giles is a really beloved member of the HDS community, the Francis Greenwood Peabody Senior Lecturer on Pastoral Care and Counseling. Her primary research interests are identifying the role of risk and resilience in developing healthy adolescents, exploring the impact of contemplative care for the dying, and increasing awareness of healthcare disparities of African Americans and the queer community. Professor Giles is a core faculty member of the Buddhist Ministry Initiative and received training and certification in end-of-life care from the Being with Dying program and GRACE, training in compassion-based interactions in the clinical patient encounter at Upaya Institute and Zen Center. She teaches courses on spiritual care and counseling, contemplative care of the dying, and trauma and resilience for caregivers. And she enjoys mentoring students who are preparing for chaplaincy, social justice advocacy, and those interested in research on trauma and the psychology of contemplative care. Professor Giles is also the co-editor of The Arts of Contemplative Care, Pioneering Voices in Buddhist Chaplaincy and Pastoral Work. She has authored articles on contemplative care of the dying and preparing clinicians to become compassionate caregivers. And I was fortunate to be in a pastoral care and counseling course with Professor Giles last year and can attest that she is one of our beloved teachers and really makes HDS what it is in so many ways. So we're very delighted to have her here with us today to introduce our panelists and begin the morning session. Thank you so much. Thank you all. Um, we're delighted to see so many of you here today. Uh, and of course, each year uh, when we have this conference, uh, one of the truly uh, wonderful benefits is to see so many uh, Buddhist practitioners of various cultures, uh, which uh, we don't get to see that much. So as we bring people in, it warms my heart to know that people are practicing throughout the country uh, and to sort of live, um, uh, lift up the visibility of uh, that Buddhism isn't, or Buddhists aren't all white, okay? So I have, have to say that. Um, uh, so we are honored, deeply honored, uh, to have our four distinguished uh, guests here with us today and look forward to their blessings and the conversation around um, 
intersectionality. Uh, so you can join me here, please, up front. Uh, and as I welcome them, I wanted to also uh, give a shout out to the HBC, Harvard Buddhist community, the, the, uh, the folks that are putting this on, uh, who have done a lot of work, uh, not only to put this conference on, but also to sit together and to think together in, in the classroom and to really make this place uh, an ongoing practice. Uh, and I think we learn a lot from them and what, what they're doing. So thank you to you all. Uh, I'd like to begin with Katie Lonk, uh, who is the co-director of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. Many of you know that organization, very active organization. Um, uh, and uh, Katie explores the paradox of how to love and accept the world as it is while fighting to change it, bridging realms between intersectional leftist organizing and lay Dharma training. Katie brings over 15 years of experience in community organizing, nonviolent direct action, and loving sedition, alongside 10 years of training in Buddha Dharma. First in the Theravadan community, their holistic work of engaged Buddhism centers in a framework they call Block, Build, Be. Block, Build, Be. Blocking harm and oppression, building inspiring alternatives, and being in alignment with our highest truths. Their personal highest truth includes cats, lemons, and the temptation. I love that. <laughs> get, get real with us. Um, and then next, Dr. Melanie Harris is a founding director of the African American and Africana Studies and a full professor of religion and ethics at um, TCU, Texas Christian University. Melanie also serves as a visiting professor of ethical leadership and global environmental studies at the University of Denver, uh, a graduate of Harvard Leadership Program and a former uh, American Council of Education Fellow. Her research focuses on finance and budgeting in higher education, access, equity, and ethical leadership. Her scholarship critically examines intersections between race, religion, gender, interfaith, dialogue, and environmental ethics. Uh, she is the author of many scholarly articles and books, including Gifts of Virtue, Alice Walker and Womanist Ethics, Echo Womanism, Earth Honoring Faith, um, and Dr. Harris earned her doctoral degree at, um, and master's degree at uh, the beloved Union Theological Seminary in New York, and an MDiv from Ireland School of Theology, and a BA from Stone College. Um, Panavati, Venerable Dr. Panavati is the former Christian Catholic, uh, and co-founder of the Christian Fraternity, co-director of the Hartsfield Refuge, a new potential community resident in the Conference Center in Hendersonville, Hendersonville, North Carolina. She is president of the Federal Human Life Foundation and a vice president for the U.S. chapter of Global Bikshuni. Uh, association, a black female Buddhist monk ordained in the Quran tradition. She is a disciple of the goddess Zuma and received transmission from Roshi Bruni last year. known for her wit and humor, is both contemplative and empowered for compassionate service. She promotes equality and respect in spiritual life for both female monastics and laity and advocates for social justice the homeless, women, youth, and those who are marginalized, abused, and abused. 
Uh, Sister Peace is a nun in the tradition of Plum Village and Zen Master Tikkunahan, who has dedicated her life to bringing the practice of mindfulness to the world, from educators and young adults to artists and politicians. She has actively been involved in sharing her experience in the practice of mindfulness to help people understand the aspirations of Tikkunahan uh, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to build a community. Sister Peace uh, lived in and was ordained in Plum, Plum Village, France, for 12 years. She currently lives in Magnolia Grove Monastery in Batesville, Mississippi. Before becoming a nun, she lived in Washington, D.C., where she worked for mayor, the mayor's office. She's a graduate of Georgetown University uh, uh, Business. She has organized in Asia, Africa, Europe, and North America, and people of color, uh, business leaders, uh, in Silicon Valley, educators, and others. Most recently, a major focus of, of service and practice has been with children in the Shelby County Juvenile Detention Center in Memphis, Tennessee. So as you can see, uh, our, our, our guests uh, really have uh, lots of experience and deep wisdom in, in the practices that they've been engaged in. So without further ado, I'd like to uh, have you welcome them in a minute. But um, one more thing, which is that the moderator, the panel will be moderated by uh, Tron, who was a community member of Plum Village for um, 15 years, and is currently a doctoral student in Buddhist studies here at Harvard, and we're delighted to have on here. She also did a Master's in Divinity here, so she's been here for a while and helped to sort of guide us along, and a really active um, and loved uh, member of this community here. So without further ado, let's welcome our panelists. to take a moment just to thank everyone for uh, being here and um, for supporting HBC every year or this year because it's their first year during this conference. Um, so as Professor Giles says, I, I did grow up in the Plum Village tradition and you know when I was thinking about the panel today, all I could think about is the five contemplations for mealtime. <laughs> but then I modified it a little bit and I, I was thinking, this, this panel is a gift of the whole universe. <laughs> the earth, the sky, numerous living beings, and much hard and loving work. And uh, I somehow wanted to bring in our ancestors to, just to sit with that for a moment because... <coughs> As Ty said, when I was growing up, he'd always you know, hand me a cup of tea and say, this is a legendary moment. So, with that said, um, I would just like to, I told, the pan, I told the organizers that I would just jump right in so we can get to the meat of, of, uh, of the conference. So, one of our main overarching questions that we'd like to invite the panelists to share about is that as as we're looking into the intersections of race and gender in light of Buddhism, in the context of Buddhist practice, study, teaching, and community, what has been your experience of intersectionality? Hello. Good morning. Well, I was one of 
wondering why I was invited to uh, be a part of this panel, simply because uh, I've been maybe the one who has uh, had the most resistance to uh, new terms, new ways of approaching things. Um, uh, I was even against the notion of, of diversity and POC groups. I've been uh, on the wrong end of that. Nevertheless, I think I'm on the right end of the dawn. Uh, when we have an aspiration, you know, then we set our course and we try to enter into that. Sometimes if we can't make it, we bring it down to this. And I wanted to just leave the bar right where it was. When I was first invited, you have to keep track of me, I was a Pentecostal teacher. <laughs> 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 first invited to uh, come and teach at uh, different uh, Sangha centers, they would invite me to come and, uh, you know, uh, speak at the PFC groups. And I would uh, contact them, you know, and say, well, you know, I'm not a black uh, Buddhist teacher. I'm a Buddhist teacher. When you want me to speak to your whole Sangha, call sister up. And so that was the entrance. And they always would. They always would. I mean, sometimes if you don't know, you don't know. So you need somebody you know, to inform. And, and I like to stay squarely in that space so that there's no wiggle room. Uh, you know, I don't, want, I don't want a new category that we have to, you know, spend a decade figuring out what it is. I just want to stay right squarely in what the great aspiration is and, and we shoot for the moon, we miss it, we still land among, among the stars. And so um, I was thinking also of our meal God. It says, this offering of the faithful is the fruit of work and care. Fruit of work and care. I reflect upon my conduct. Have I truly earned my share? My conduct is what I reflect on. And have I truly earned my share? And so I, 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 um, I'm not really looking for what the other does as a catalyst for moving forward. I look at what I do. <laughs> Uh, and I have found that that has been a most uh, fortunate um, uh, frame of reference for moving forward. So in my life, um, you know, there's a, a Zen saying, to know the Dharma is to know oneself. And to know oneself then is to forget the self. Forget the self and you know the ten things. So I never consider myself different from, from the things. Not the real self. You know, Paniwadi has some things, but when you get rid of Paniwadi, then what? What? That. And so all of our work should be, and our effort should be moving towards discovering the that. And when we discover it, then that is what is displayed. Uh, and people can, can learn something through the direct experience of you. Um, and you don't have to require that they do it, but you do it, just you do it. And in doing it, people see another way that something can be done. So I've not been, um, <laughs> until, until recently, like maybe the last uh, eight years or so, I was not very um, popular because I was always going against the tide. I mean, I'm Chan and, and Tara Vaughn, uh, terrifying, but I wear Zen clothes because because um, uh, I like them, <laughs> and um, and I don't like 
you know, Theravadan dress, especially in my tradition, it was brown, and brown on brown just doesn't feel that, um, feel that good on me. So I would wear the orange, maybe. You know, I mean, it's these little things where one finds their place and they, and they abide in that, regardless of what anyone else has to say. But it's opened up such a freedom from the, uh, for the people who encounter, who encounter me. You know, and they see somebody there who's walking, you know, in their, in their own, I thought I was free pretty much before I came to Buddhism. I want to come here and get bound. You know, I, wanted, I was looking for greater freedom. So I might have started at a certain place. And that's why I said we can't keep starting over. You know, we have to, we have to go on. And so uh, for me, uh, I am much friendlier now towards uh, conversation around diversity. Um, but I felt that we should all stay together. I mean, I feel like a lot of people got just what they wanted. You know, like you have a little group over there, we okay. You know, but I like us staying together because it's that rubbing together. You know, if we're really committed to what we say governs our lives, which is the Dharma, Dharma first, Dharma first. Not an appendage, not an also ran, but Dharma first. Then it tells me it, how to move and have my being in the world. And I can always look and know where I am. Because whenever I think I'm lost, I can see what the Dharma says, and I know where I am. Said so even if your enemy were to cut you limb by limb, and you had any feeling of hate towards him, you would not be practicing my Dharma and my discipline. That's the standard. So, I'm active, but I'm a pacifist. And I don't require that you do something, but I do have a requirement of you. I do something. And if I do my job good, it may influence you, and it may not, but what does that to do with me? No, I just do, I just do my job. But I tell you, if we each did, if we each had the courage, to walk in our own truth, fearlessly, fearlessly, without any sense of another determining who we are, what we are, how we are, where we will be, and then we will know an inner freedom that the world didn't give us, so the world can't take it away. Um, so I think I'm less than my tenants, but that's, my, that's where I start with everything. You know, when I open the center, you know, people are like, that's not going to work, you know. Um, well, I mean, but that was their view. That had nothing to do with me, you know. I knew that it could work because I knew people are looking for something else. I don't believe that we're all meant to be like, you know, like a cookie cutter, cutter mold. Um, you know, like vanilla wafers in a pack, you know. Um, each one has some unique quality that they bring to the experience of life, and that if we all join this together, then uh, we can have a real experience, not a make-believe one. So, um, I think I, I can stop right there. And I'm not sure that answered your question at all. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's what I want.
Good morning. Good morning. Beautiful. Beloved community. Well, thank you, our venerable elder sister, for opening the door to adornment. Because I want to share a story. <laughs> I want to share a story how a very sacred adornment in my community had an entirely different meaning for me. When we're ordained and we become novices, boy, aren't we excited and or anything new we want to we want to conform, we want to fit in until you know, the rubbing starts. <laughs> and then things get wonderfully challenging. But in that beautiful honeymoon time, uh, we we dress alike as, as monastics in, in our tradition. And the women would wear a Headscarf. You might have seen pictures in some wear the headscarf. And so I was trained, like everyone else, how to wear it. But when I put on the headscarf and I looked in the mirror, I said, well, how come the headscarf doesn't look beautiful on me? I would look at my monastic sisters and I would say, well, it looks good on them, but why not me? And I thought, well, maybe I'm just not used to it. And with time, I'll get used to it and it'll be okay. A year later, I'm looking in the mirror. Why is it not? And the sisters by now have shown me half a dozen ways to put it on. <laughs> right? And I'm fumbling with each one. It was too hot, it was too this. But I didn't want to just dismiss it. I really wanted to understand why was this so difficult for me. So, Amira looked and I said, why? With the purest heart and Suddenly, in the mirror, there was a reflection. And you know who it was? It was Angel Mama. With a scar. And I went, oh. Instantly, I understood, but I have to take some minutes to tell you about it. with a scarf. And I grew up in the 60s and 70s when it wasn't beautiful. In fact, we were inculcated to distance ourselves from this vision. It wasn't beautiful. Don't, honey, don't wear that. It's not, nice. it's not beautiful. We're past and any number of other things. some other folk 
dancing in the background with Step and Fetch it. Uncle Ben's on the rice box. Right? Rashid, cream of wheat. You can go down the grocery aisle, see them all. <laughs> and I thought, oh. And what did I really see? I saw where my ancestors, in order to save their lives and the lives of their family, to make it so that we're all sitting here today, they stepped and fetched. They were nannies, not only to their own, but to all others. They were cooks, they were servants, and they did what was necessary. it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be able to be here in this form looking at you. Wow, the arc connected. And so, when I look in the mirror on the rare occasion that I still wear the scarf, I no longer see not beauty. I say, hey, Angela, how you doing? When I go down the grocery aisle and I'm seeing my folk on maple syrup bottles and boxes, pancake and syrup. Hey y'all, what's up? <laughs> How y'all doing? So good to see you. Because you were there, I'm here. And this had an even deeper connection for me because my grandma nanny Worked her entire life. A place called Millwood, Virginia, where she was born. And she worked in the house I visited one day, and I swear it was the house they filmed Gone with the Wind. And they had pictures in golden frames and ribbons. And they were pictures of horses doing in the living room. And she worked in the kitchen and she ran the house and she raised the kids and she was a wet nurse to those children. She worked her entire life for them. She died at 89. And I know, I can't even imagine what she might have had to do to survive. But I do know this. When it came to her funeral, those two Gilman boys came. They were grown men, two white men. And they fell on their knees at her cassock and wept like babies because she was their mama. She was all their mama. And we're all everybody's mama and aunt your mama and, and all the rest. So I was really grateful that I had the and I just didn't totally dismiss out of hand this beautiful thing. I could see the beauty and I just couldn't see it on me. And was able to look deeply and ask the question why. And to understand because of my experience, the 
as a black teenager growing up in a time where we had difficulty accepting our identities. That's what I was left with. But now, <coughs> hey, and your mama. Good morning, friends. Thank you so much, all of you. Um, I feel unspeakably grateful to be here. And the film, I mean, can we just give it up for Kimberly Crenshaw one more time, first of all? Grateful for her and her work. And it left me with this question, um, I didn't actually understand that intersectionality came from a, a metaphor of roads, but that was so interesting to me. And it made me wonder, where are these roads going? And what are these roads made of? And who built these roads? Right? And on what materials? And what's it doing to the runoff of the water and sinking into the ground, all that stuff, right? Um, it makes me wonder, I mean, class, right, is like an invisible road in the case that she was describing because class and survival and what we do in order to secure the means of our and our people's, our family's survival is at the root of what Emma was searching for in a job, right? She's not going to work at an auto plant just for fun. Like, it's for her survival and the survival of her people. So there's class, there's disability, you know, there's citizenship in there, there's nationality, there's like whose land is this auto plant built upon? What are these roads made out of, right? It's so, it's so strange. And it appears in us in ways that are both material and sometimes spiritual or metaphysical. Um, so I have a sort of similar story about about uh, how intersectionality has come into play in my practice, in my Dharma practice, which requires a little bit of background. So my dad is black and his mom is from Jamaica, um, was born in Jamaica. When my dad was a little boy, uh, his mom advised him to bite down on his lower lip so it wouldn't grow too big. Yeah, and I think this relates to the question of where are these roads leading to, right? Like, in the minds of some mothers, you want your child to be on a road of class ascendancy, of professionalization, of people taking him seriously, of people <coughs> respecting him, and in this particular white supremacist society, that means phenotypically you have an easier time if you look more white, right? So that's one part of one story. Another part of the story is my mom um, is a, a feminist who comes from a working class immigrant family who escaped the Holocaust in Europe. And uh, because of her, my first protest 
was in middle school <laughs> against a dress code policy. <laughs> and it was like around the time when these things are kind of controversial um, of girls or people raised as girls, people socialized as girls, um, were told that we needed to cover up essentially in order to help the boys concentrate in school. Is that familiar? Anybody yeah. experience this in here? Yeah. Uh-huh. So like similar question, like what I have to contort or do something about my body, which is a problem for you, <laughs> right? So how does this relate to Dharma practice? And where also again, always in my mind is like, where are these roads going? Like, why do I need to do, to abide by these policies? Similarly for my mom, she was, um, she ended up going to law school, even though her dad didn't think that women should go to college. Um, and she became the head lawyer of Planned Parenthood of California and did reproductive justice work. Um, so, I w- fast forward many years, I'm in Sashin, one of my first Sashin in the Rinzai tradition that I had started studying last year as a switchover from a Theravada um, lineage. And it's physically just very tough for me in this body. Like we're sleeping four hours a night maximum, sitting on the floor all day, my body's in a lot of pain, I'm like not even really changing out of my clothes because you're just wearing the same stuff. And I'm in so much pain like in my side and my neck and all I can think of is like, well maybe if I take off my bra, then it won't hurt as bad. And so I asked the teacher, the Roshi, in my one-on-one interview with him, if it would be okay if I didn't wear a bra during Sashin. And he kind of laughed at me. He was like, I don't care what you do, you know? So I went into the changing room and took off my bra and put on back on my clothes and there just relief, like this palpable relief. But in that relief, I felt my dad as a little boy, you know, just wanting his body to be okay how it was, and I felt my mom and, and people whose bodies are sexualized with breasts and people who experience misogyny and are told you know, how to conduct and comport our bodies because we are a danger to others. Um, but the practice helped so much, you know? And it's these questions that you're raising of, Again, where are these roads going? It's not, it's not just about feeling vindicated in this body. That's part of it, but this body is transient. It's not really mine. It's made up of so many different parts and people and non-human beings and elements. Um, but it's really ancestral healing work is how I think of it. You know, it's the opportunity to be there for ancestors and to, uh, to build the compassion that we call solidarity, right? To me, solidarity is a really beautiful form of spiritual compassion. Um, and I'm hoping that, that the roads are leading toward more compassion, wisdom, and freedom, that that's, uh, that's how we can use them, even if that's not 
why they were built. Right. Right. Race was not built to help us find freedom, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Binary gender, not built to help us find freedom, right? Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And so, I don't know, I'm, I'm really curious. How can we, how can we like build on this metaphor? Of like, what do, we want, what do we want to do with these roads, right? They're full of potholes, they're falling apart. Like, <laughs> how, can we, how can we make use of them? And so just to end my, my part of the remarks, I wanted to share a visual aid that I brought with me. So I, I'm coming from uh, Huichin, or Occupied Ohlone Land, also known as Oakland, California. And um, I brought a visual aid. Uh, do you mind helping me? for the Shell Mound. Wakanda's for the West Berkeley Shell Mound. And this is a part of an expression of solidarity, the compassion of solidarity um, across race. The Shell Mounds in the Bay Area, I don't know if folks are familiar, they are um, sacred sites and burial grounds of the Ohlone people and places where folks from different tribes converged. Um, and this was part of a campaign, a, a, a campaign led by Karina Gould and folks from Ohlone nations who are protecting the very last shell mound that has not been vertically built upon in the Bay Area. All other shell mounds have been desecrated. There's a mall built on one of them in Emeryville. Like, the bones of Ohlone ancestors are kept in anthropology departments and basements. You know, it's it's this story of genocide and ongoing genocide against Native people. So this was part of a campaign that I'm happy to say has been successful. Give it up for organizing <laughs> to stop a condo from being built up on top of the West Berkeley Shell Mound. And it's, again, led by Karina Gould and Native folks, but a bunch of us as black folks in solidarity got together and created this action. Wakandans for the West Berkeley Show Mound. And this banner was designed by my housemate and friend, Erin Gray, who is a queer black scholar. Um, and actually, she studies lynching. She studies the histories of lynching in the United States. So we all got together and stayed up till the wee hours in the morning painting this banner. And then we used it as an informational picket for people trying to enter the parking lot right, right by the show mound. Thank you so much, Dr. Harris. So. so yeah, I just, I wanted to share a little bit of a flavor of why I feel so excited to be on the road of compassionate solidarity. Like it can bring up so much beauty, so much possibility for us to connect with each other and to do um, the necessary work of protecting ancestors in the ways that we are called to do. Thanks so much.
gratitude to all who are here and also those who are not here. Give gratitude to all those who have worked so hard to organize and to bring new friends and old friends together. And thank you so much, An, for helping us to remember again deep moments, legacy moments, moments of kinship and love. The story that brings me to the conversation around intersectionality can be heard in the multivocality of what we've just experienced. It is indeed a traditional way of coming together, of breathing in mindfulness practice. And sometimes What we also hear is a black grandmother's Billy reminds us that we are called to love the lynching of truth. And the white mob. <coughs> and to hold sacred the blood that flowed from the black body hanging from that tree. Kimberly Crenshaw's intersectionality is an invitation for us indeed to live deeply into race talk, into gender talk, into economic class talk, into sexual justice talk, into environmental justice talk into the realities of the way homophobia fragments the self from the self and from each other, and the varieties of justice roads that we must walk together, simultaneously. Now try writing that in a five-paragraph essay. <laughs> <laughs> or a 20-page paper. kind of prism, indeed, is she calling us to be, to live into, to write, and to create? It is only truly in the languages that we have heard from the stories spoken here this morning that we even begin to know how. 
Might we need new tongue, new language, new word to confront white supremacy and anthropocentrism? And how are we to do this if it is so hard still to sit with each other? These are the gifts and the challenges, I think, of living most deeply into intersectionality. And they are also the challenge of living in community, in a deep, deep, beloved community way in which our ancestors and our teachers have taught us. Not just Thich Nhat Hanh and King, not just Esther and Shifra and Pua, not just the women, but also the children who are celebrating today in protests with their mothers on International Women's Day. Those here and those unborn, those butterflies that are still to come, and the trees right outside of Harvard Divinity School. What have they seen? Hearing Earth, hearing the roads, hearing these stories, that too is the work of intersectionality. The story I will share is a short one, but an important one. About eight months ago, I gave birth to a black, beautiful son. In the delivery room, I came prepared. My sacred text, Pima Trojan, just in case. <laughs> my altar with a beautiful Bible handed down from my grandparents and a picture of Buddha. <clears throat> in my mother's understanding of my preparation, she knew I was preparing a beautiful altar. She is preparing in the name of the Lord. May the works of my hands be blessed by God. The meditation pure, my heart ready. But wow, contractions. <laughs> Woo! It is as if every thought that was in one's mind disappears. Only this remains. Oh. So I've been swallowing tears. <laughs> um, 
Thank you, Venerable Panavati, for just sharing um, your, your practice with us and everything um, that you said about finding your place and abiding. And I thought that was really beautiful. Yeah, we can't hear you. Oh. Um, about finding your place and abiding. And I think that's a, it's so beautiful to not only to find place for yourself, but also find place for, as Sister Agnum said, our ancestors. And then, and then as Katie said, for our, for our future, for both of you guys, both for our future, finding that place and abiding. Um, and I have so many feels right now, but I'm just trying to like narrow it down. Thank you for your feels. <laughs> and, and, you know, when I, when I was listening to everyone speak, I was, I was thinking about the roads that we inherited that we didn't ask for. And um, these intersecting roads of oppression, you know, and these bodies that we didn't really ask for, but we have. And they're not, and for me, they're not an oppressive thing, these bodies that we have. And I always remember in the Buddhist sutras, they always say, your body is like the raft that brings you to the other shore. So for me, you know, this body is love and this body is your liberation. And so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, how do we use these bodies to transform these intersecting roads of oppression, um, of white supremacy, of, of, of just in the injustices that exist in our society today? Um, and how do we use these bodies, and not just our individual bodies, but our sangha bodies, our ancestral bodies, our spiritual bodies, or even how do we transform even our gendered bodies to transform these oppressive roads that we didn't ask for into a place in a, uh, where we can heal and support each other so that we can, as Venerable Panavati said, walk in our own truth. Um, how has your practices informed or can speak to the transformation of these bodies and these roads that we inherited? And this question comes up because I've had many conversations with my beloved Professor Halsey. And a lot of the times, I'm very confused. I don't know what he's saying. <laughs> 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 He lo very lovingly breaks my brain in many ways. <laughs> Professor Giles is up here <laughs> as a testimony, yeah. And um, I'm always confused and I don't know what to do in front of him, but he, the thing that I always take away from these conversations is he's always saying, it doesn't have to be this way. And so I wanna leave that out there and put that out there and ask the panelists to please perhaps share about this or, you know. Thank you. So when I used to go to white songs, they would always say, how do we get more uh, people of color in our songs? Like, how many do you know? How many do you have <laughs> right. with? How many do you invite over to your house? You can't just hang a sign that says black folks want it. You know, so, so, um, so having been in this body for, for 70 years and you know, it was always known that, um, you know, it's easier for you if you look white and that wasn't gonna happen, then I need to have no illusions about how I needed to walk in, in the world. So you have to find your own identity based on a composite of what you have inherited in this life. 
And that's why I, I love the Dharma, because the Dharma takes us just right there to that. You know, so I'm not ruminating in the past. Uh, my father was born in 1899, so I don't even have to tell you about that time and the things that, that he experienced. He just woke up one day and said, you know, baby, too much, uh, too fast, I'm ready to go. And he shut his mouth and he never spoke again. And in two weeks he was dead. He just, just too much I've experienced in this life. And so I was always called like an old soul, you know, because I could feel it. It was, it was still fresh in me because my father was so old. You know, and uh, one day um, uh, I, went, I went to a, a Sangha member's house and uh, she wanted to show me all the art on her walls and things like that. And she wanted to know what I thought about it because she was so proud of all these things and that what her family had left her for, um, you know, so that she had a start in life. And she said, what do you think about it? I said, I think you should sell all of it and give the money to Hartwood. That's what I, th <laughs> that's what I think you should do. <laughs> Uh, and so, so it's, um, it's our story, but everybody has a story. And I try to find what, uh, to understand another person's story. I don't have to tell you about my suffering as a, as a black person when you tell me that your, um, uh, your mother ran off with your 17-year-old boyfriend and the family was destroyed. I mean, your story is just as challenging it's my story. So we all have a story, you know, and, and sometimes to get beyond the story, we have to move into a place that it is impersonal. Everybody's got a story, you know, and this is not to diminish the story. It's just to know that everybody has one and that we're in a world that is suffering. And as we move out of our personal suffering, we give a space where people can see that it is possible with all the inequity, with all, you know, all the things that are wrong. It is still possible to live a life of freedom and liberty uh, in spite of external obstacles because freedom comes from the inside out. And so when I give up my story, you know, and I've got a bunch of them, and I've told them for a decade. No need to tell them anymore. You know, I've given up the story. And some say, well, some haven't heard it, haven't heard it yet. They haven't really, you know, felt it yet. No, but they have their own story. And if I can look at you and, and, and just know that you also have a story, you know, then uh, I can find a point of contact where we can begin to come together. I tell the same people that say, how do you get people of color in your sangha? I'm like, I don't know. When you find out, let me know, because I don't have any in mind. And I live in the deep south. I live in a, in a, in a, a segregated town where blacks can't free, except me, walk up and down uh, Main Street. Yeah, you know. So what would be success for me? Would it be having black folk in my sangha? No, it would be for them to be able to freely walk up and down Main Street. You know? And so we have to look at what is really needed, and we have to demonstrate so people can see that it is possible to have freedom even in the midst of external oppression. Um, I, I'll add to the wisdom. Um, the brain is a very resilient part of our bodies. So know that Professor Hallisey has entered your brain very lovingly <laughs> and that it will transform into a beautiful flower. Um, 
I do believe that this is a part of the gift of what uh, Crenshaw and so many others using critical race theory have given us um, the pathways and, and the form of intersectionality in part because freedom does come, as you said, from the inside. It is a matter of having the choice and then taking the choice to use intersectionality as a lens, which is a different way of coming into the question around quote-unquote diversity. It is not just to um, answer the call when someone says, how do we diversify our sangha? Um, but to ask the larger question about the systemic oppressions and the systemic racism and the institutionalized forms of oppression that are around the Sangha. It's not that you don't have enough parking spaces, but it may be that the asphalt is actually eating into the earth, which suggests that there is something in the Buddhist practice that's actually not in keeping in step with the creation of the asphalt in the first place. So if the asphalt is eating the earth and the earth herself is not welcome, then how are you gonna get black folks in the door? And thinking in that dimension, which is a different prism, it's an intersectional way of thinking that black folks matter, that blackness matters in a society where it has consistently been said that it doesn't matter, literally, legally, it has been consistently said that these lives do not matter. I work in the area of religion and ecology, and oftentimes in eco-womanist conversations, eco-womanism comes from the term womanist, coined by Alice Walker, a practitioner of Buddhist meditation, and for much of her life, in part because of the invitation to reflect on the suffering in her own life. And ecology, bringing eco-womanism together really does allow us to think through an intersectional prism, an intersectional lens, asking the justice questions. What does race have to do with the environmental racism that's happening right outside of my sangha, or church, or faith community, or school, or campus? What does class have to do with the sexism that's happening right inside my own community? What does economic injustice, what does, how does gender injustice show up? How does ecological injustice show up? How does homophobia actually interrupt the system and the process of learning for so many? And to actually ask these questions at the same time, again, in writing and thinking together, all at the same time, not privileging one over the other. And, and that's difficult to do, the challenge that has just been put before us, is essentially not to use a hierarchy of suffering. It seems to be Buddhist practice and Buddhism, and in some forms of Christianity, there is a chance, even with Christianity, there is a chance that we can actually begin to take the pillars out of the road of the hierarchy of suffering, literally competing about who suffered more. And the ego seems to step right in there. Isn't that interesting? Even in the process of healing and trying to get this up together, the ego seems to want everything, all of the attention all of the time. 
how do we go into the heart and take out the bolts of those um, structures? And the practice, I do believe, helps with that. It would be great if, in fact, in the forms of American Buddhism and the way that it is structured, that, in fact, individuals practicing mindfulness could, in fact, change systemic realities and systemic oppression. That is not the case. American Buddhism got that wrong. The individualism of the United States of America that's practiced normatively here, that actually works alongside many forms of American Buddhism. It doesn't work to free beings and quote unquote non-beings. Like I don't even have to say anything because it's already all being said. Yes, I. Suffering is universal. We all have a story, and yet oppression is patterned and specific. And if we want to learn how to heal oppression and oppressive systems, we start paying attention with our minds and our hearts. Are we, at, are we answering your question? <laughs> it doesn't matter. I would, I would love to hear more of your questions if you have a lot. Wow. Um, I wish I could say three things at once. because three experiences are, are coming up in me at once. And I'm gonna try and connect them. So we're talking about our bodies. And I'm concerned about our children's bodies. And um, I'm concerned about the bodies that I live with Day on a daily basis in my monastery. When I went to Thailand a couple of years ago for the first time, maybe six or seven years ago now, and I went into the restroom, <clears throat> you know, this is the nun's restroom, I saw bottles of shampoo that were skin brightening, <coughs> skin whitening. And I was shocked. Look, how can I be here? And I said to a nun who was around, I said, what is that about? She said, well, you know, maybe you can help talk to the sisters about it. <laughs> <laughs> in Asia, and in the bathroom was skin 
whitening, brightening, you know, soap, shampoo, everything. And I just, it was incongruent. And I wanted to have a chance to, to speak to my sisters about it, but I, I didn't have it then. And, and I bumped into something else that a lot of times in many communities about who can be enlightened. You know, you have to be in a monk's body to be enlightened. And one of my sisters said that to me, and I said, I'm going to make a deal with you. You come back in the next life as a monk, and I'm going to come back as a nun, and we're both going to get enlightened. <laughs> and then when I'm back at the monastery, you know, being dark is not as readily acceptable to some as others. And I, among my group, is the darkest. But how could I use their view to teach them and to teach and more fully accept myself? Because that thinking was not foreign to me at all. So I would sit outside in the sun and I'd pull up my seat. <laughs> Anyum, Anyum, Anyum is my. Vietnamese monastic name, which means peace, so sister peace. And you <laughs> what? What's wrong? <laughs> the sun. I said, oh, I said, don't you know? The darker the berry, the sweeter the juice. <laughs> Wait. I continue to embrace it and maybe even take Going to the beach, again, Anyam, get out of the sun. What they tell me, you're already dark enough, maybe too dark. But I didn't get angry. Because I knew it wasn't their fault. They were colonized by the Chinese and the French and had to go through the Vietnam War. And my folk were colonized and we still trying to recover from that stuff too. Eventually, when they would get a tan, I would say, oh, it's so beautiful. I said, you look kissed by the sun. And over time, you know, they, they would then come and make a comparison and start to be okay with it. I didn't say, you have to be okay with that. And I didn't lecture and all, you know? I just had to demonstrate because I had to embody it. And I won't spend a lot of time now, maybe during the Q&A, I can share more, but when I talk about the bodies of our children, uh, I'm working on a project called Be What a Bullet Can't Be. And we're in Shelby County in Memphis, Tennessee, Juvenile Detention Center. And make no mistake, 
juvenile detention is a sanitized way of saying a jail for children. And most of those children look like who in this room? In Shelby County, in Memphis, Tennessee, where a great king was assassinated. But we went in and we brought mindfulness and the arts to help these children in their dark nights and their cells with no windows to offer them something. The practice, slow walking, and breathing like a tree in a storm. And helping them through that walking and through mindful art to explore their stories. To see their bodies, not, not what put them in jail, but what, where they come from. And it was wonderful to be able to help them to connect to their own bodies. Because they're in the bodies of big strapping men, but they are babies still. And so my call to action is, is, is a simple one. We know the term compassionate action, but what compassionate action can I, can you, <coughs> get passionate about. What can we do to help not just relieve suffering, but to transform it? How can we embody it? How can we model it? So that others can see. One of the reasons I'm sitting here in this body is because I didn't see enough. But I saw one or two. I said, well, if they can do it, I can do it. And to me, the practice isn't about you know, being a monastic, but the practice is about having a way, having a different way. And I suppose we'll talk a little bit more about that this afternoon. Because so many of us are suffering and are caught in the ignorance of not knowing that there are other ways to practice our spirituality without discarding anything. So the bodies of my sisters and the bodies of my children, as my mother would call us, cheering. <laughs> Those are the ones. Um, I was wondering if Dr. Melanie had something to say because I see you over there. I see you. <laughs> I, I thank you all for the wisdom. Um, I am taking notes, as any good for any student, good student at Auburn does. <laughs> um, it's about a, 11 o'clock, and I wanted to leave some time for the audience um, to extract as much wisdom as you can from our exceptional panel. Um, and so I would like to invite, um, so we have some mic runners and if you have any questions, please feel free to raise your hand um, and take up this opportunity. 
a lot. Um, my name's Erin, and I use they them pronouns. Um, so just thinking about like this question that comes up really frequently of like how do we bring more black people, how do we bring more people of color into our sanghas, um, a concern that comes up for me more and more is why are we so, why is there such a fixation on like obtaining more black and brown bodies um, and not on like ending racism, like generally in the world, like transforming ourselves to live differently in the world. And I'm just, as people were talking, I like put together that it's also about like this mindset of continued colonization um, in Buddhism and in like wanting to like not necessarily respecting the spiritual practices that people have been and are still carrying um, within their communities and kind of like seeing it as like, well, we have to bring this practice to people because they don't have anything. Um, but then simultaneously like wanting more of those bodies to like, I don't, I'm, I feel confused about it, whether it's like to get like brownie points or like virtue points to be like, we did, the racism, it's gone in the Sangha. Um, so I guess I'm wondering about how we can live further into the Dharma um, and share what the Dharma has to offer without replicating um, our history and our present of colonization. No big deal. It's <laughs> yeah. um, so I thank you. I thank you for that question. Um, uh, people would ask me, "Well, when did you leave? You know, leave Christianity, and how did y'all?" <coughs> Actually, I I never left. I just stayed on a path, and I kept going. Right. You know. Um, <laughs> And over here they call it an anity, and here they call it an ism, and here they call it an ist, and you know, like so, whatever label you want to get it, give it, it's okay. But it's just getting on the path and and keeping going. And at one time there may have been certain things that I needed to integrate and to understand, so that I could could uh, more adequately move into the space. Um, you know, I always believed uh, in the Bible and said I could come up to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Jesus. I looked at my congregation, I said, like, we are woefully lacking. We are, we're still groveling at the altar, you know, calling for some Hail Marys or something. You know, and I wanted to know, uh, how, what is I, I needed to do that? I found that in the Dharma. I found the step-by-step -step instructions, but then I do have to do it. You know, so I think a, a, a lot of America, <laughs> they want the lazy man's way to, to the, the wealth. They want the lazy man's way to riches. It's the M.O. You know, and so they don't want to put the effort in that's required. We think that practice is sitting on a cushion meditating. That's not practice. Buddha said, I call that a pleasant abiding here and now. He said, what practice is is when somebody's standing in front of you and calling you a nigga. That's and what you how you respond to that. That's that's where you practice. The practice is is you need it at that moment. What will I do and how will I respond to that? You know, and so we don't really want to practice. We uh, we want uh, 
a pleasant abiding, but he said the only way you're going to be able to sit on that pillow and have that kind of pleasant abiding is that you have to have done your practice in the real world, moment by moment by moment. You know, so to study the Dharma is not the same thing as cultivation. We have to cultivate something. I mean, you can't like just uh, read about crops growing and think you're going to have any food on the table. You have to, you have to, plant, you have to plant something. And so uh, when, our, when our Western Buddhist practice becomes a real practice and that P-R-A-C-T-I-C-E, is that how you spell it, on a piece of paper, then we're going to see some kind of shift and some kind, some kind of change. What will draw people in is when they see your freedom. If they don't see any freedom from you, you know, they don't want to go there. You know, already bound. Like, why, why we need to go there? You know, but when they see a certain power, a certain dunamis that, uh, that comes off from you, then they know there's something there, and they go to see what, and see what that is. And that doesn't just go for, for people of color. That goes for black folks, white folks, uh, yellow folks. It goes for everybody, because everybody's looking for the same kind of em empowerment, and they look to see uh, to when they recognize it in someone, then, then they will come to see how do I, how, how can I have, how, how can I have that too? You know, and so if there's a failing, I like it when the Buddha got on the, uh, his disciples. He said, you know why the people are not changing? Because you dropped the ball. You have not been doing this. And he went down a whole litany of what they hadn't been doing, speaking to the teachers. And he said, you dropped the ball. So how can they step into this? You know, and so um, I like to take the responsibility. When something's going wrong in my center, it's my center. I don't want anybody to be confused by everybody, you know, but really, you know, I founded it and have a vision. So when something goes wrong in there, I take the responsibility. You know, I don't say, look what you did, because I let you be in that place. You know, so I take the responsibility. The buck stops with me. The good, the bad, the ugly, and the beautiful, you know. And that's how, how I train them for them personally to say the buck stops with me. And if each person is doing that, there comes a kind of mutual accountability. And, and it creates a kind of harmony that everyone uh, can realize the fruit and the, and the benefit of. So each one has to take a responsibility. If each one can teach one, then we'll, then we'll all, all get it. So we do have to make some shifts in our understanding of what is practice. It is cultivation. It's not studying. Study's good, but
sort of pushback. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I could try to speak to both questions. So yes, I hear that a lot. Um, and at the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, I think that's we attract people from many sanghas who have that experience, that they don't feel that a politicized experience of their life is a welcome presence in their sangha to be able to apply the Buddha's wisdom to like our real lives, <laughs> um, which may include, yeah, all kinds of things. But, but here's the thing. So like right now, there's a, the first wave of attacks on Cambodian folks in the US for deportation is happening. And a lot of those Cambodian fam are Buddhist. So partly the pretended apoliticization of Buddhism in the United States is really this product of white supremacist centering of the experience of citizens, of the experience of white Buddhists, um, and, and even of the exclusion of Buddhists who were raised Buddhists, Buddhists who come from lineages of Buddhism through Asian diaspora. And there's like a very odd thing that happens that we've been, um, that folks like um, Aaron Lee from Angry Asian Buddhists who has since passed, uh, folks like Chen Zing Han, folks like Funi Su, folks like Duncan Ryukan Williams who just published a book called American Sutra about Japanese American Buddhists interned in the concentration camps during World War II. Right, like that's politicized Buddhism, hello. <laughs> um, and I, I would hate, well, I think we have, things can be otherwise. It doesn't have to be like this, I love that. We can be creative and loving with each other and we can say, well, one thing we're doing at Buddhist Peace Fellowship this year that people thought we could not do is having an all black indigenous POC eco-dharma retreat. Um, and people were like, there's not enough Buddhists in the US who are POC who like care about the environment. And we were like, buh? <laughs> <laughs> you know? But it's, it, it's this mentality. I mean, it's, it's, there are studies, re recent research that show that people across the board in the United States think that environmentalism is a white thing think that white people and people with wealth or middle class people care more about the environment, right? And there's all these different layers of social conditioning that have produced these views, right? So I think we have to get very clear about what we want and then start from that place. Like not, not just reacting to the colonized views that we happen to be surrounded by in this place and time, but finding those others who share our visionary dreams and like tender hopes that feel scary to admit to sometimes, which is like, can I have space with my Dharma fam to talk about anti-blackness within Asian diasporic Buddhist communities and to talk about black collusion with the erasure of Asian American Buddhists in the US. Like, can we, can we find the time for that in a way that does not have to center whiteness or 
diversity in a traditionally predominantly white sangha. Um, so these are the dreams that we're trying to help make happen. And I would love for all of us to be able to share, like, what is your dream that you're building? Like, what are you making happen in your sangha that's beautiful and amazing? Like, I really want to hear. <coughs> Greetings, thank you for all of your presentations. Um, I'm specifically interested in um, hearing more specifically from Sister Pete about these uh, transformational um, programs that you're doing. Could you um, talk about how you do them and like, what are some of the elements of it? Um, I'm interested in how you are bringing together the, um, the artistic part with the um, uh, spiritual part. Thank you for the opportunity to expound. So our team, we call ourselves the B team. And I smile because to me it's a double entendre when I think about the habitual B that uh, we be doing what we doing, and we don't just do it in a moment. Myself and three others, two filmmakers and a uh, photographer, Amanda, who uh, was um, Michelle Obama's photographer in the White House. We all had a dream. And we're all practitioners. And we wanted to be able to really make a shift. You know, at the end, I could see the paradigm shifting. In the beginning, yeah, I wanted to work with the children. And uh, the story actually started with one of, one of my team members, Alan, who was on an airplane and read an article that uh, Chief Justice of the Juvenile Court in Shelby County, Judge Dan Michael, said yeah, he had the awareness, he had the insight to know that the, these children were children and that they shouldn't be thrown away and that they were definitely rescuable for, for some, who would use that term. And he invited anyone who had programming to come and called him and said, we have an idea. We want to bring mindfulness and the arts together and we want to offer it to the children. And uh, so we did that. And we went in and we'd start by throwing up on the screen a picture of Dr. King and my teacher, Tignana. Explained who they were just by, well, that's my teacher. You know Dr. King? Well, they were friends and that's my teacher. Don't need to say much more. And those of us who've experienced Dharma sharing, we know we sit in a circle and we share. Well, you know, teenagers in jail, who some lived in the North and some lived in the South barrack, because one was in this Bloods and the Crips and different gangs. 
So when you went out and did what we called the weather report, what did you get? How you doing? Fine, 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 fine. It's too risky. But eventually they'd open up. And we'd start with slow walking. And how that came about. One, one child just broke down and said, I don't know about the rest of y'all, but I'm going to tell the truth. When I'm in my cell at night, I'm on my knees crying and praying to God because I want my mama. And at that instant, I said, well, you know what I do in a situation like that? I do this thing called slow walking. I didn't give a long dissertation on what walking meditation was. I said, you interested? Who liked it? Who'd like to try it? Okay, nobody said no, let's get up and let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> and the sharing came with the walking. Let's walk slow, let's breathe, one step at a time. We're walking on our precious Mother Earth. And I do all sorts of creative things. I even one time invited them to send energy to a hurt of their own physical body. And only later did I realize how brave it was for them to admit it. And so in the uh, opening, our sort of uh, weather report, what, what's your word? What's your word? Give me a word. Black diamond, uh, cloud, rose, like that. And then the only thing we could bring in to help them artistically get in touch with that was paper, copy paper, and 64 color Crayola crayons, because pens and pencils were contraband. And we said, write, draw a picture, write some words, Boy, they were able to touch their stories. Not what they had done. We didn't ask, we didn't want to know. And when offered, we denied. Because we didn't want to be colored in any way, even on a subconscious level. I was, wanted to be there to support, not to insidiously condemn. And they came up with the most beautiful stories. The most beautiful, uh, um, sharings of their life. One young man, his name was Preacher, because he gave his first sermon at 13, but yet there he was in jail at 16. And he said he, he was inspired to write a book. And it's gonna be called 21 Chapters. I said, oh really, that's, where are you? Where are, I'm, I'm on 16. I said, 16, how are you on 16? He said, because that's where I am now, I'm 16. And I'm writing backwards. And then by the time I'm 21, it'll be finished. Don't underestimate intellect because of the body somebody's in or what they may have done. And I heard stories. And I was grateful. And I know that these young children perpetuated crimes and created victims, but they themselves are victims of their circumstance. And 
can we hold them in the same way, if not more so than those who were victimized? And we do slow walking. And we sit and we breathe like a tree in a storm. What happens when you get angry? You're up here, right? The branches are, where, where are you? you? Is that where you want to be, in, in a tree in a storm? Or here? What's happening here? What, what, what part of the tree is this? Trunk. Trunk. Is it solid? Is it stable? And we move down, and what's, what's down here? And are we connecting with our ancestors, those living ancestors, and those who may not be with us, or in other dimensions? These kids got it. They would go back to their cells, and they would practice. And then they taught the others. And fast forward, I don't want to take too much time. The three months we were there, the violence in the facility went down by 54%. And we didn't touch everybody. We kept trying to figure out how, how that was. Then we started hearing the stories how they were teaching the others. And the newer boys could come in. I saw so-and-so walking in his cell. What was he doing? He didn't know. It looked right, so he went to his cell and started doing it. <laughs> or one who had an altercation on a basketball court, because things are very tense, and was able to sit in his cell and breathe. And when there was a sit-out, rightfully so, because the kids were denied showers and phone calls. They wouldn't go into their jail cells. So when we went in the next day, and we have to give them a list of who we want to see. They said, well, the guy said, well, look, I, I got to look at this list because you know, we had some activity, and, if, and if, if they were part of it, they can't come today. Okay. And he, oh, yeah, this guy. Well, he's all right. He was the only one to go into his cell that night. Slightly far-reaching thing. He knew he could connect from the time he was with us and sharing his story and what he wanted to accomplish and do. That if he went into the cell, he'd get out quicker. So this gave me a whole new insight. Going in, trying going in for the way out, he went in. So it wouldn't count against him, and he'd have to spend more time. There's a whole host of other stories uh, that I could share, but essentially the, the, we would, uh, and I would often, I would just be a satellite and I'd just do slow walking in the room while the filmmakers would work with the kids and helping them with their stories, and sometimes I did too. We brought in an African-American artist who is a resident at a local Tennessee university to help them to get in touch with it. So that Black Diamond could express the fact that he wanted, he had a dream to see the stars from the ocean that he had never visited. You know, or Earth Shadow, who looked at his own shadow one day and wondered, does the Earth have a shadow? Now, what kind of young, brilliant mind could look at their shadow and say, wonder if the planet had shadow. 
And when he asked the question, the teacher said, sit down, don't be stupid. But we brought a video in, and we showed him an eclipse. And it, wow, to see, to know that he was right. So each one had a story, and this is how we cultivated it. We were able to film, extraordinarily so. And uh, we will be putting together a piece on the work that, that we've done, and, and it continues. somebody who looks able-bodied and for me for example I live in Western Massachusetts oftentimes I'm having a panic attack and my person will interrupt my conversation on the phone to someone and ask me a question just stop me in my tracks because I'm a service to white people <laughs> um, and I know go back to the practice have compassion and what I know even when I'm you know invested in ableism myself when I know that I'm dealing with somebody who I should do with compassion I do do it but at the same time, no one is, you can't see behind like whatever this six foot tall body looks like to you, um, this able-bodied person. Um, so if anyone could speak to that, like what does it look like on the individual level and that scale to know that someone is not recognizing that you have your own story <laughs> um, and you don't want to speak to your own story because you don't want to compare notes and you don't want to do all of that, but how do you actually practice in that moment? when you know your humanity is being ignored and when you're not in that teacher role, you know, you're on a, I'm a person right now who you're able-bodied, you're white, you're wealthy, you have all these things and you can't see it because of what I look like, you know, does that make sense? Thank you. When we started the program for uh, homeless youth, um, our place was called the, the ghetto place, but the only one black was me. And we had 85 kids who went through that program. But when they came, first came in, you know, they would call us, they would call us by the N-word, they call us nigger. Now I have to say something about that. I know that, that for people who are young, uh, over time different words affect people differently. But when I was coming along, and that was a time where I couldn't graduate, couldn't walk across, I did graduate, couldn't walk across the stage because I wanted to wear afro and we had to have our hair pressed to be able to do that. And so I just opted not to walk across the stage, send mine in the mail. And, uh, <clears throat> and at that time, you talk about police brutality now, at that time any white person could beat you. You know, it wasn't just the police who could beat you, any, anyone white could beat you. Uh, and uh, and we started taking the the word uh, nigger, and we reframed it, and we adopted it as our as our own. So when we saw, we took that and turned it into at that time in history in in our culture a term of endearment. So we see, said, "What's up, my nigger?" You know, mine, you're my nigga. 
what's up my, you know, because they had, had made it an epitaph that, that uh, totally diminished us. And we turned it around and we made it a term of endearment. And that's how we survived in the uh, late uh, 50s and the early 60s, you know. Uh, and time has gone on, and it's and it's understood in a different in a different way. Uh, we have now internalized the the white perception of it, and so something that we had gained has has been lost because minds are always seeking. If you find one way to overcome a problem, then you have to find a way to neutralize the strength that's coming from something, you know. But within that way, we begin to embrace one another because before that, we were like crabs in a barrel. You know, if only one can get out, who's that going to be between me and you? <laughs> you know, and so, and so changing that, you know, and so when they st came in and they would call, call me nigga, I didn't react to that. I said, I know, baby, I know you heard that in your, in your kitchen. I know you heard that, you know, at home. And I just go on and do what I did because if my doing for them depended on them liking me, then that's not the reason to do it, you know. But I was doing something that I felt needed to be done. I could do it, and, and I did it. By the time they would leave that program, I was no longer the nigger. I was Mama Wati, you know. And they, so what I'm saying is they had to have a direct experience of something understand it in a different in a different way so unfortunately we have to create a context by which some people can have a different experience when they come to Hartwood um, most of them I mean in our town when I got there they said nobody black leads anything in our town you're west you're uh, from the north and we don't like northerners uh, you're a, a woman and our women, and you're too outspoken, our women are seen and not heard, and you're Buddhist and we don't even know what that is. Said, so we came to tell you, they sent a delegation, because they don't have any problems with that where I live. They sent a delegation to put me on notice, like, we're watching you, and what you can't do, but everything that they said I couldn't do in that town, I ended up doing anyway, anyway, you know, uh, because I wasn't fearful. When the KKK comes to my song, and they still come from time to time, but most of them just abandon that, you know? Because I told them one Sunday, keep your shoes on when you come. You know how we take our shoes off. Yeah. Keep your shoes on. And then, uh, and then we just had regular song, and, that's, and I dismissed. And I said, but Pani Wadi, why do you want us to keep our shoes on? I said, oh, oh, oh. I was just making a point. I said, because if I ever see those shoes under a sheet, I'm going to say, Johnny, is that you? what yours did to mine, I'd be scared too. You know, but I'm not scared because it's, I'm not living with that constant fear. And what I want to let you know is that there's a way that you can turn it around so that fear won't be there. I said, so you can come here and you can learn about that. I said, but I tell you this, I'm happy to see you come, but I'm happy to see you go if you don't want to be here. So it ain't going to be no sucking up and no petting, none of that. Happy to see you come and I'm happy to see you go. So when somebody leaves and they say, well, where's so-and-so? I'm like, I don't know. Well, we should find out. Why should we find out? I didn't invite them. <laughs> you know, they came of their own free will, and ain't no locks on that door. 
you know? They'll come in and they hear something, they'll like start rattling, looking for chewing gum, rattling keys. I, I stop the Dharma talk. Time out. Excuse me, you see that door right there? There's no lock on it. You know, if this is not benefiting you. And, and it stops those kinds of things. Because now they're too ashamed to get up and walk out. You know, and then they stay and they hear something. You know, so it's, it's in our, but, but doing it in a way that is really impartial. You know, like not feeling, uh, not temperaturizing, so I'm speaking, so I'm just speaking truthfully. You know, you can learn in some places that you can speak truthfully. And I don't have to agree with you, and you don't have to agree with me, but we do have to speak truthfully to each other. And, and people find out that they can speak truthfully. When they're in an environment where the people are disciplined enough to hear what they have to say. I think this, I don't know if I should say this. I'm going to say this in this <laughs> But I think, uh, I think, oh, I'm just saying, this is just Pondwadi speaking. You understand that. I'm not speaking for Harvard. I'm not speaking for anybody else in here. But I think our election could have turned out a little different way if we had been listening. You know, I read an article that talked about uh, how, um, I think it was, uh, 20 years ago, or maybe 10 years ago, I forget now, I'm old, I'm 70. How um, the mortality rate, you know, for uh, 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 whites uh, dying, uh, well, blacks dying younger than whites, you know, was at a certain percentage. Uh, I, I think it was like um, whites die at 70% the rate of blacks. but when they did the last study in uh, tw uh, 2015, that whites without a high school diploma in a certain age group were dying 30% faster than blacks. So that's third, from 30% living 30% longer to dying 30% younger, that's a 60% spread. That scared the bejeebies out of anybody. I mean, so, so there is this fear that we're dying. We're dying from whatever, drugs, uh, suicide, depression, because we can't work, whatever your reasons are, I understand. You know, but to see how great of an of a, uh, uh, increase it was, it starts to bring fear. And it changed my whole understanding of what was precipitating something, what was brewing under the surface. You know, because I've been looking at our issues. We got our own. You know, you got to take care of yours. We got ours. But then I looked and I saw theirs is ours. You know, and so I needed to pay attention to that. I live in Appalachia. That's all I got to say. So 99% that, so of those mindsets are right there. How am I going to be effective unless I'm willing to hear that and to... Uh, feel their fear. It's not possible. Yeah. So there is something that we have to do if we want to see the change. When do we want it? We want it now, but we may not have it now. There might be something that we have to do, just like our ancestors did, to create the space for something to happen in the future. Uh, and that's what I want to say. I know we are and we want it now. Uh, you know, moment in time. But some things only bear fruit after a long time. And we have to be willing, uh, you know, to travail until some things are transformed in our society. Yeah. Hey, thank you.
I know that um, I know that we're at time, so I want to make sure that I honor that. But I do want to address the question as well. Sometimes you do need to take Sabbath and uh, take a break. Sabbath. Um, it's an invitation to, in Christian tongue, to take a rest and to take retreat from the perception um, that others have about your body. And you do that by naming yourself in the moment, sacred moment that you're in. I understand that you have a question and I appreciate you as a human being. And I hope you can see that I'm in dialogue with Sojourner Truth right now. And you're interrupting that conversation. And in order for me to see clearly in this moment and to honor you fully, I need you not to press me with your question and your value because I have value in this moment. In Buddhist tongue, the concept of fierce or wrathful compassion. To hold that person accountable in a deep, deep love and compassion. So much so that they have a moment to breathe and to reflect on their own action of interrupting. It pushes both, I think, back into the Dharma, back into truth, back into Buddha nature. And one can be as mindful and as conscious uh, to be able to breathe, take a moment, ask where is dignity in this moment? What do I need as an embodied being in this moment? Who are the ancestors who are holding me? What's the love and the lineage that's holding me? It's significant and important too to uh, point out because we are all at different places on our journeys and paths that there are multiple conversations happening right now in the room and in the space. And so if you're hearing multiple conversations and thinking, uh, am I hearing things right? You are hearing multiple conversations happening in this space. So please know that. There is an important reality that many people who identify as people of color and the questions that we may be bringing to this conversation all day today, um, oftentimes those questions need to be answered and, uh, and heard and voiced. And there will also be questions that are coming from people who are not people of color, who also have genuine questions. It's important to recognize all the different questions and all the different social locations that we're embodied in this particular space called the United States of America as we're being here today. So I just want to say that, and I've said it as delicately as possible, but uh, to be clear, <laughs> know your social location today. Love your social location today as deeply as possible. And also know that your social location is constructed and that we are actually after a deeper truth of being in full refuge with each other, with each other. That requires 
a lot of deep listening. Can I add one quick thing? Um, is it Wallace, you said your name? Hi, Wallace. I really appreciate you bringing that question and experience. And I just want to particularly appreciate and lift up the dimension of ableism and disability, which is so often missing from our social justice intersectionality frameworks. Um, and I'm just wondering if, in a, in a dharmic sense, like taking refuge in sangha, taking refuge in people with similar experience, black and POC, disabled, like other folks, um, and their experiences responding to ableist entitlement, racialized in all kinds of ways. Um, I'm thinking, since we're talking about intersectionalities too, I'm thinking about, I think her name was Moya Bailey, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, who coined the term misogynoir and is a disabled black scholar who talks about the ethics of pace and is a really brilliant um, contributor. And so, I mean, I have all kinds of questions and excitement to broaden the intersectionalities dialogue to include other roads, <laughs> right, that are often not even named. Um, and also to acknowledge, like, as a temporarily able-bodied person, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, that you mentioned crabs in a barrel mentality, Venerable Paniawati. Like, there are ways that our solidarity is even interrupted because so many of us are just trying to be okay, mm -hmm. um, and or intergenerational trauma and bodily memory that if our ancestors were not physically fit, then that was a very dangerous situation for them. Um, I'd really love to have it more of a dialogue than just talking. I don't know if you have any other further reflections that you'd like to share. Not at this moment. <laughs> it's all good, yeah. signals from this the corner that it's it's time for us to take a break um, um, so I've gotten signal that it's time to take a break um, so I just wanted to wrap up um, the panel before I hand over the mic to the organizing team and, and really thank our panelists and thank everyone here for just making this a tremendous space and um, in, in Vrajayana Buddhism, there's a, I read something about whenever um, someone has reads the Dharma or starts to think about the Dharma or even have faith that all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and their ancestors and all the homies roll up <laughs> to witness it and to support it. <laughs> and so... Um, I just like to thank everyone here for, for being here and witnessing um, each other, which is witnessing ourselves and also um, witnessing the things that we 
can both see and cannot see. And, and being as mindful as possible of that. And so thank you very much, everyone, for holding this space in this moment for all of us.